Logical Progression, Year 4, Chapter 13, Lesson 4. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa salli mubarak ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'atahu sahla wa anta tajlu al-hizna idha shi'a sahla. Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatik ya Rabbil Kareem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. MashaAllah, good to see you again. I have some guests come from far, MashaAllah. London representing. Huh? Before Barani said that you travel for the class. I'm in the area. Shiki Pak. Hope you guys are all doing okay, inshaAllah. And I hope that the folks um, online enjoyed um, on site as well. But last week, um, Sheikh Walid's lesson. I think I listened to it three times. I really, really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. And I got a number of people to listen to it and watch it again because you see in Sheikh Walid's uh, style a great uh, concern for something which he also looks for, as, as, you, as you might have noticed. Uh, he is himself a traditionalist in terms of that he likes to follow a madhab per se. Uh, and he is obviously a big kind of a fan of the Hamli Madhab upon which he grew up and so on. But also, there's that, there's that uh, how can I say, that classic Najdi vein going through him. This, this, this love for Dalil and this love for the actions of the Salaf and trying to make sure that there's always a precedence before the Imams. And I like that style and it's very nice to uh, see that come out. He's a great scholar, mashallah, of our time. Anyway, alhamdulillah. So, um, as I said last time that I taught, okay, uh, that uh, we reached a particular stage, and you know, I'll read it to you actually, I'll read the entire text, okay, uh, and so we said that the prayer is obligated upon every legally responsible Muslim except those who are menstruating or having postpartum bleeding, okay, and that is what we have covered so far in two or three lessons, and what I want to do today is this part it has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness from sleep fainting intoxication etc it is not considered valid from someone who is insane or a non-muslim however if a non-muslim was to pray we would treat him like a muslim children are ordered to perform it when seven and physically disciplined for not doing it at ten if the child was to reach adolescence during the actual prayer or after or after it while still within its legal time it is to be repeated. It is not permissible to delay the prayer beyond its time unless intending to join prayers or being involved in fulfilling one of the conditions for prayer, a condition which is close to completion. Those four paragraphs is what I intend to do today because the content is not very heavy as such and we should be able to do that in our lesson, inshallah. And then just to explain what happened last week, Sheikh Walid then started the session <coughs> Whoever denies the obligation of the prayer or doesn't pray out of laziness has committed disbelief. The imam or his substitute should call him back to the prayer. But if he persists and the second of two consecutive prayer times is running out, both perpetrators are still not to be killed until their repentance is sought three times. So that was done last week. Sheikh Walid pretty much completed it. A little bit left in terms of some discussion of the evidences back and forth where, with respect to the humbly position versus the rest and a number of really really excellent points that were made by him which maybe we will review 
uh, in a quick summary when we come to it uh, ourselves. Inshallah, next week. And if I can get these four paragraphs done, then, then we're on, 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 you know, on target. And if we don't get them done, then we'll continue on next week until we finish this section. And then we'll just carry on from wherever Sheikh Walid uh, dropped, uh, uh, left it off. So, again, we ended last session by saying that those who are menstruating or having postpartum bleeding are um, exempt uh, from the uh, uh, prayer. It's not obligated upon them, obviously, during those times. There's one thing that someone asked, and I do apologize for the folks who have been waiting for their questions to be answered in the portal. Um, I did intend to get to it, I've been traveling and a bit busy, yeah, but I do intend to uh, cover those off sometime before the next lesson. But there was one which I found important, which I think maybe a few people did, uh, did not understand or missed. And that's because we've kind of been touching upon it throughout the last kind of couple of years, but in a general way. And we covered it in the menstruation uh, seminar. Um, and obviously some of you did not attend that or have seen the videos. And so let me say again that when we said that the prayer is obligated upon every legally responsible Muslim, we mentioned a couple of things. That the legally responsible Muslim is someone who is, what were the, what were the conditions? Someone who has aql, yani someone who is aql, yani conscious, sane, uh, uh, not, yani, not crazy, not insane. Okay, so that he is responsible for his actions and bulugh. Yes, bulugh. Now this word bulugh uh, really is a nightmare to, 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 to translate. Okay, as you can say maturity, you can say puberty, you can say post-pubescent, whatever it is. Okay, but the folks wanted uh, a more technical definition of what actually uh, constitutes post-puberty or maturity. And so there are three which are shared between boys and girls, and then one which is specific, of course, to the girls, which is menstruation, okay? So that's very important, that obviously menstruation for the girls is their unique sign of puberty. Once they start their menses, once they start their bleeding, then they have entered into puberty, or they are now mature, or they are now... What are the synonyms that we use? What do we just say? Mature? Mature? Is that what we say? Is that really the, the, the word? Because I just, I don't feel comfortable with the word mature. I, I, I always have this understanding that mature refers to mature of mind as opposed to mature of body. No? Is that, is that, is that, is that technically true? Or in the medical industry, you don't use that. So physical signs are considered as the signs of puberty or pubescence. And then you just post pubescent. That's it? No more? Nothing online? No? So far? Which, nothing? Just adolescent. Adolescent, yeah. What does actually adolescence mean? What does adolescence <coughs> actually technically mean? It's the transition between teenage and adulthood. When you reach puberty, you are an adolescent. Is that technically correct? When you reach puberty, you become an adolescent? The period following the onset of puberty during which a per young person develops from a child into an adult. Shaz, you're your man, Miski. What? Mustahur, inshallah, man. What did that, Sheikh? Uh, oh, you, that's the actual definition, yeah? That's what it says here. That's very good. I mean, uh, Shazad, really, uh, say it again louder, Shaz. Not wanting to talk to you, but... Uh, the transitional period between puberty and adulthood in the human development extending mainly over the teen years and terminating legally when the age of uh, age of majority is reached. Youth. That was the, de the dictionary definition. Google translated it as 
of the period following the onset of puberty during which a young person develops from a child into an adult. Mm. So, yeah, what doctor said as well. All right, okay. So that's good. So how do we, how do we, and I mentioned last week, and I was reviewing my lesson that I taught last two weeks ago, and I did mention that when it comes to the ages with respect to the prayer, and we will touch upon that again, um, maturity, uh, cleverness, intelligence, all these kind of things is not considered. Is not considered. Um, uh, and that's a big statement. That's why I don't like the word maturity. Okay? And we'll, I'll explain more about that afterwards. But for now, when it comes to puberty, then puberty in women or girls is seen by the menses. And then by both of them, it's in the three. It's in pubic hair. It's in the emission of money which is sperm, which is what dreams basically, sexual excitement. And according to the scholars, and there's not an agreement upon this third point, but the age of 15. So basically, if someone has not exhibited any signs, then by the age of 15, we treat them like they have. So it's like not possible for a 17-year-old to be tra- treated like a child just because they don't have pubic hair, haven't bled, haven't whatever. Technically, is it possible to, for a 17-year-old to not have menses? Yeah. You didn't you yeah. remember our survey? I mean, I mean, Come yeah, on, yeah. Man. No, I meant, I meant. You <laughs> hardcore for that. And I so, 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 so. We did do a survey, and we did have, but it's only like one person in there out of. It doesn't matter. It's still so, 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 I take that back. Imagine I never said that. We can add that in the in the in the editing. Yeah. So, um, so these three things, okay, uh, are shared. So pubic hair, and pubic hair is very important to understand what we mean by pubic hair. By pubic hair, we mean around the sexual organs. We don't mean underarm hair, which is a big mistake people make. Because people see underarm hair, or they see moustache hair, for example, and they consider this is, this is the sign of puberty. It's not at all. Okay? Even, even, uh, or body hair on any of the other parts, or the other sexual organs, such as the breasts or anything like that, it is not part of the sign of puberty. Also, even as the ulama said, they like to add the phrase coarse, okay? It's like a thick kind of hair, or a thicker kind of hair, to differentiate that between thin hair, or fine hair, I should say, which is often found on the private parts, okay? So we're talking thick, coarse hair, which is called pubic hair, which is the hair which grows on these sexual organs, okay? Um, down below sexual organs. That is what we call pubic hair. And that's very, very important. And I've seen a number of things, um, uh, I mean, a number of stories, but I mean, uh, they have happened to me personally as well. People have brought their, their children and they're saying that they're, that they're, post-pub- they're, they're, they're pubescent. And they're not. They're not. Okay, simple as that. The second, as we said, was uh, money. And we've talked about money in a lot of detail in the first three years. In quick summary, of course, this is the sexual fluid which is white, uh, cloudy, slightly more colorless in, the, in women, and it is emitted, and it is always emitted with uh, a delight, with, with a, a, a sense of uh, happiness and a sense of uh, sexual pleasure, and also, as we said, there is a, a sense of tiredness as well, and exhaustion when it comes out. And these are the very specific characteristics that, characteristics that must occur in order to differentiate between what does happen to children, which is madhi coming out, which is, which is prostatic fluid. And we talked about that as well in the first couple of years, because there might be other emission, of course urine, of course uh, uh, blood, but more common 
Madhi, prostatic fluid, which looks similar, doesn't smell the same, and we describe these, again, people can review it in the revision notes for each year, they looks the same, but when it comes out, there is no feeling of sexual happiness, pleasure, there is no feeling of tiredness, and it's just white cloudy fluid. Consistency is the same. It can often be slightly thick, viscous, etc. So really when it comes to sperm, you are for males and more sexual, general sexual fluid for females, then you are looking more for the feeling which is associated with it. That is why when we are trying to explain this to children, okay, the concept of the wet dream is the easier one. Okay, and that's why you'll often see that a sign of puberty is you get wet dreams. That when they wake up, they find that, or they wake up by the feeling itself, or they wake up and they see the signs. And we went into this a lot of detail in the chapters of purification. And then the age of 15. One thing, of course, very important to note about the age 15, two things, I think. Number one is that 15 is 14 complete years. So how does that work again? So if you were born at zero and you reach one, then on your first birthday, the next day you are one year and one day, right? So you've completed one year. So, so uh, the scholars said that 15 refers to 14 complete years. So it's after the 14th birthday. That's basically what I want to say. That's what the, the majority of the fuqaha have said. So we, in our mind, when we think 15, we think 15 complete years and then moving into the 16. Okay, but in actual fact, 15 refers to aged 14. All right, so that's the first point, technical. I remember that for the future as well. There are some exceptions to this, and when there's an exception, there's a reason, and we'll explain that. The second important point is that these are Hijri years, and not Georgian. Not Yani, you know, not Georgian. I said that second last time, didn't I? Gregorian. Okay, see all of you went along with it. Not a single one I recognize. See that? All of you asleep. All of you asleep. Georgian. I said that last time. You're laughing inside. I said that last time, by the way. You know, I guess someone caught me out last time as well. Then who it was. Anyway, Gregorian. Okay, and so therefore, or Hijri years. And uh, so these are Hijri years and not Gregorian. So, I don't know. Someone put a rough guess together how much earlier you could be? Yeah. 10. 14 plus 12. Half a year? Really? 12. Five months. That's my boy right there. <laughs> five months. Okay, so you could, you might need to assess that for five months, meaning 13 and a half-ish. Okay, so that's another, that's another point to keep in mind. Uh, another point, of course, and I mean the reason, yes. So 15 complete years is on your 15th birthday? Yeah, it didn't make sense what you said, by the way. Why is that? You said after one complete year, from zero to one. Yes, it's one complete one year, year. And then one day. Uh-huh. So after 15 complete years, you're 15 years and then one day. You said 14 complete years. I said 14. 14 yeah. complete years. So you're 14 years old and one day. So, correct, yeah. So what, what I'm saying is that when in Sharia, the word 15 is used for an age. Yeah or any number is used for an age, the meaning of that, forget what we understand from a, you know, whatever, Western perspective. What we understand is one thing. What it means when the, in Sharia it is mentioned, is that 14 complete years have been done. And then you are now into your 15th year. That's what the, that's what age 15 means. Yeah? 
So it's very different to, you know, what we what we use here. We are not considered 15 until you've done 15 actual years, and then every day after it is always always 15 years and one month. 15 plus one is 15. Correct. 14 plus one day is I'm 15 years old, or the age of 15. You're not 15 years old. It's not referring. This is, this, I know this is confusing. That's why I, I knew that I, I better stop and explain it. Just say simple. You're in your fifteenth year. You are in your fifteenth year, but uh, uh, what if a, a person asked you? What if a person was trying to calculate for the purpose of I don't know, um, maybe something to do with nifas or something to do with divorce or something to do. Yeah, and it's something which needs accuracy. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between how old you are. And what the age is for a Sharia ruling. Does that make sense? Yeah, so there's a difference between what's called an age limit or an age threshold and how old you are. So if you were so and so, you know, years and months old, then you would count it exactly. You would say 14 full years plus eight months of whatever, you know, he passed away on the first of Dhul Hijjah or something like that. So you'd be accurate. However, for the purpose of like this ruling of understanding a certain age, you understand 15 as 14 complete years and then a day. And that's in this scenario for puberty. And I say that for this reason for puberty because the ulama, they don't want to delay it too much for obvious reasons. Because if we have a sexually active boy or girl, okay, who that's not very obviously or externally sexually very active, we have to protect them and others. And so in the case of protection, we have to be on the safe side. Safe side, of course, is going to be taking it from the younger kind of angle. And that's why I'm going to say what I'm going to say now. Number one, we, we do 14 plus, that's considered 15. Number two, we use hijri years. So therefore that reduces the age even less. So we're looking at 13 and a half or whatever. Number three, this additional point that came to my mind, the fuqaha, they always uh, focus, uh, 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 they don't, sorry, uh, the fuqaha always focus on the technical facts. The scholars in general look at a much more social construct. And therefore, they will not, that's why the, the, the ulama in general will say at the age of 10, we expect a 10 year old boy is when we expect a woman to be wearing hijab in front of. So even though the 10 year old obviously is not. Uh, you know, necessarily post-pubescent, not necessarily, you know, uh, all the rest of it. Miles of 15 years old, of course, miles of 13. But there's an idea that though there are, there's like three categories when it comes to the ruling of women with children. Those that are very young, as Allah says in the Quran, it will come to me in a minute. It will come to me in a minute. The first, uh, the, the first category are those uh, children, those uh, so young that they don't even have not just the sexual urge, but they don't even understand the sexual urge. They don't understand the concept of beauty, for example. Okay? The second category are also prepubescent. But they understand the, the difference between someone who's beautiful, someone who's attractive, but can't 
يو نو فيل ذا ايوه ايوه الايه الكامله لو سمحت وكل المؤمنات يغضبن من ابصارهن ويحفظن فروجهن ولا يبدين زينتهن الا ما ظهر منها وليضربن بخمورهن على جيبهن ولا يبدين زينتهن الا لبعولتهن او ابائهن او اباء بعولتهن او ابنائهن وابناء بعولتهن واخوانهن وبني اخواننا وبني اخواتنا ونسائهن وما ملكت ايمانهن او التابعين غير والاربه من الرجال So after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the ayat of hijab, in surah al-Hazab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the women to uh, 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 cover their, uh, their heads, cover their chest, put the khimar on and protect the hijab from their fathers, from their, uh, don't have to worry about their, their uh, hijab from the fathers, the husbands and so on and so forth. And when it comes to the more obscure categories, we have those men who are so old, okay, in the age of like, in servants, they don't have any sexual desire anymore. That's a, that's a, a long discussion, we leave that. And then those children, this is hard that is not there. They don't understand the aura of women. So if they saw a naked woman or, or saw a clothed woman, it just wouldn't make sense. It would just be, you know, this is a style and that's a style. It doesn't understand that this is something unacceptable, this is a sexual organ, this is shy, etc., etc. Will That's it. So, this, so because of this ayah in Surah Al Hazab, this uh, uh, definition. Of the, you do not need to wear hijab in front of those children that do not have an understanding. لا يظهر يعني they do not uh, appreciate almost okay the awrat of the of the women. That therefore means that there are three technical categories. There are those that do appreciate that the awrat they do understand nakedness. They do يعني, appreciate this is a very يعني, unacceptable situation to be in, but they have not reached puberty. And so technically speaking, they could still be around women. And then finally, you've got then women who are, uh, have gone through, pu- uh, 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 you've got children who have gone through pubescence. And of course, it's obligatory to then maintain hijab and not send them into groups with women, etc., etc., etc. Is that cool? All makes sense? Yeah? That, that's why, as I said, the scholars are sometimes so careful that they went to the age of 10 and 11 and said that's the age where we wouldn't have a boy who would be presenting, going into the girls' section, for example, to pass a message, etc., etc. You'd kind of cut it off at 10, 11, even though technically speaking, it could be up to pubescence. Is that clear, everybody? That's the difference between fuqaha and scholars. Yes, Suzanne. So, if you, if you said before that obviously there's three characteristics. Yes. Yes. It seems that the last one trumps the other two, because even 13 years and five months is going to take a lot of children out of the equation in terms of developing sexual characteristics. Meaning it? that they all develop much more later. Yes. Mean. Yes. Okay. So, so that's going to be the, the defining criteria for our our modern time. A uh, 14. So yeah. For uh, our modern time, uh, a more 14 year old kind of age would be the defining kind of characteristic, right? You said before that there's a difference in opinion. Some scholars put that as a criteria. Yes. The, age, the problem with the age 15 is that there's no nos for the age of 15. There's no divine text for the age of 15. But the scholars generally said that we have to choose a figure that basically doesn't you know, make a mockery of the system. And of course, we know that a, the system cannot be based upon outliers. It's not based upon the 
rare. Yeah, it's got to be based upon the generality, which is why the age of 15 is chosen. And 15 being even at the very, very conservative end, i.e. 14 years and one day. And then conservative and even more with the use of Hijri calendar. And then conservative age even more in that anyone who's even close to pubescence is treated like they are pubescent. So when a, when a child or, uh, uh, is even exhibiting some kind of understanding, some kind of appreciation, the idea of shame, the idea of turning away when they see something like unacceptable, then that's the only the age where you start to consider this. It's not haram, that, don't get me wrong. Okay, If a child is 12 years old or 13 years old and they are not pubescent in any way at all, then they could technically go into you know, a gathering of women or be alone with another woman. However, you will see that our culture... Our tradition from day dot has always been, and very strictly, that they start much younger, one or two years younger. That's in all of our countries. That's what I, uh, that's what, uh, what I have experienced in my family, in my culture, in my khil, uh, in the Somalian, Pakistan, in, in uh, the Arabs, the Egyptians, uh, my kids here who have their female teachers as well. They started to turn off the, the screen in terms of presenting themselves in teaching, at the, when they reach the age of 11, and so on and so forth. So this is a universal practice of the Muslims, and a very sensible one, and a good one with reason. And that's the reason uh, uh, what it is. Okay, so we haven't even started the lesson yet, which is good. Uh, so what did we say now? We're now in the section of... Um, and it has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness from sleep. Okay? So, Sheikh uh, Uthameen, he says that it has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness from sleep. He said, um, what, this basically, what this basically means is that anyone who goes to sleep and misses a prayer, then when they wake up, they have to make it up. And this has been something which has been established by di- divine direct text as well as consensus. As for the text, then the Prophet ﷺ has established this both verbally and by his own action. Verbally, the Prophet ﷺ said that whoever forgets to pray or is asleep at its time, its expiation is to pray it when he remembers it. And this hadith has been narrated by Bukhari as well as Muslim. Okay? So whoever forgets a prayer or forgets to pray, both translations are acceptable, or sleeps at its time, its expiation or the expiation of that, the expiation of that sin, the expiation of that act of, of missing it, forgetting it, or sleep or being asleep at its time, is to pray it when you remember it. This statement is referring to two separate scenarios. Number one is where literally just goes out of your mind. And people have had that happen, and Asr always is the one where this happens by the majority of, you know, anecdotally speaking, it's happened to everyone, especially winter time, where the time suddenly, you know, suddenly becomes maghrib, and you're kind of not even sure, did you pray, did you not pray? This is something which you are not sinful for, and as soon as you remember it, then you have to pray. And we will come, of course, and talk about the technical ways of how to pray that in, uh, afterwards. And the second scenario is, you go to sleep. Now, going to sleep, of course, is an act which is permissible, okay? And sometimes it is recommended, and sometimes it is obligatory. Rarely, though, is it haram and hated. So it's more at the positive end than the negative end. However, 
because it's more at the positive end, the action of sleep, people can become slightly negligent towards it. They need to be a bit tight and sharp when it comes to how to control their tiredness so in order to not miss a prayer. And if you miss a prayer obligatory, if you miss a prayer intentionally, then that's a very serious matter, as you heard Sheikh Walid explain, that could be a state, an, action, an action of kufr and really throw you out of the deen. Whereas a person who falls asleep and does not wake up because they miss their alarm, which is the most common, simple way, of course, after setting their alarm, of course, knowing that the alarm usually wakes them up, and not setting some kind of pseudo-alarm saying, well, I hope it doesn't kind of wake me up kind of thing. You know, putting it a bit kind of, you know, you know people who do that, you know? And they're putting it, you know, just crazy. But I mean, you know, if someone does that, then that obviously also doesn't count. Now, the statement is what he said, وسلم, His action is also recorded in another hadith narrated by Bukhari and Muslim. The Prophet وسلم, and it's been referred to here um, in the book of Tayammum, uh, footnote number four, the Prophet وسلم, he, uh, went, they had had a long, busy day of traveling. And so after they prayed Isha, he, on a rare occasion, prayed with her. And then he told his companions, uh, someone, make sure they guard for us the prayer. Yani, guard for us the prayer. Meaning, yani, someone make sure they did the alarm clock, wake up for Fajr. No one woke up whatsoever, and it was the Prophet ﷺ who woke up first. When he woke up, as the hadith says, as uh, Abu Qatada is the uh, narrator, he said that the Prophet ﷺ, felt the sun on his back, meaning that the sun was rising. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he told everyone to wake up. He, uh, everyone then woke up in a state of panic. They didn't know what to do. And so the Prophet ﷺ said to everyone, get onto your rides and ride. And they rode for a little while and then they disembarked. And the Prophet ﷺ then told everyone to make wudu. And in the hadith, this is one of the hadith for the descriptions of wudu. But a very small water was used, a lot less than usual, because they were on safar and they had limited water. And then he told Bilal to make the adhan, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and they prayed to sunnah, and then they prayed to raka'ah fajr, after the sun had risen. So this hadith is narrated by Bukhari and Muslim. And this hadith has many, obviously, important lessons. The first of them, of course, is that the Prophet ﷺ missed a prayer in his life, and he showed us how to fix it. That's the first and most important lesson. Second, the Prophet ﷺ never, as we're going to see in a minute, ever missed a prayer intentionally, okay? Unless the reason itself was extraordinary, as will come, okay? And here we can see the proof in that he set his alarm. If it was today's time, he set the alarm because he told the companions to let's guard upon the prayer, let's show we, let's, i.e., let's not miss Fajr, make sure we wake up for Fajr. That failed. And because the intention was to pray and it was through no fault of their own that they missed the prayer, there is no sin. And so therefore, because there's two things what happens when you miss a prayer. The sin and the expiation of the prayer itself. So the sin and the making up of the prayer. If you intentionally miss the prayer, you sin and you are punished and that's intense. And you are liable for the prayer. If you don't make it up, you're in kufr. If you make up the prayer, at least the prayer is not going to be held accountable for, but you still have a major sin on your shoulders, which cannot be expiated by any action of the dunya, any action. It has to require an act of repentance. Repentance, of course, has four conditions. We'll talk about this later, about the acts of repentance that fix major sins, because that, of course, is a major sin. 
Or the other possible scenario from missing a prayer is that you didn't do it intentionally like the Prophet ﷺ did it and therefore you do not sin as long as you pray immediately when you become aware, i.e. when you wake up. As for the prayer, because you pray it, then that has been dealt with. And so the position is zero, you are not in a position of sin. Is that clear, everybody? Those are the two possibilities. Now, of course, the other advantage here to understand is that, and for those who study, uh, uh, who have studied Fiqh Salah with me in, in uh, the, the weekend class, the Al-Maghrib class, you'll know that I have this position which I do like, um, and it's the position of the Hanafi school. And it's a very interesting position, actually, because it goes directly against this hadith. The Hanafi school, they said when they gave fatwa to the masses, to the masses meaning the lay people, they said that when you miss a prayer, like Fajr, for example, you pray as soon as you wake up. And that means, there's a meaning that they say that, that means that even if the sun is rising, which is a prohibited time of prayer, uh, we're not doing this now, we'll come to this in its good time, but when we study the times of prayer, you'll know that when it comes to prayer times, each time of the day falls into a category. You have recommended times for the prayer, you have obligatory times for the prayer if you haven't prayed, you have disliked prayer times for the prayer, where it's not good to pray, and then you have haram times to pray, and then you have very haram times, meaning that there is a serious sin involved. And um, the last two about how to categorize how bad it is to pray or how prohibited it is to pray also depends on what kind of prayer you need to pray. So if it's an obligatory prayer that you're missing, then that obviously takes precedence over a number of these, uh, these caveats. But if it's like a voluntary prayer that you're praying, then you are very aware that only sometimes you can pray it in the not-so-haram time, but you could never ever pray it in the absolute haram time. So for example, a kind of haram time to pray or a very disliked time to pray is after Fajr until sunrise. So for example, let's say Fajr starts at 5 o'clock, uh, 6 o'clock, okay? So Fajr starts at 6 o'clock, the crack of dawn, and sunrise is at half past seven, and uh, you pray Fajr Jama'ah in the masjid at seven o'clock, for example. Then after seven o'clock until sunrise, this is a haram time to pray, in principle, in principle. I'm, uh, I'm just making a very brief statement now. This is a huge chapter, huge chapter about, and, and there are prayers that are permissible to pray in this time as well, but I'm just giving you a quick example. So to pray from 7 o'clock to 7.30, your sunnah or other kind of prayers is not acceptable and not on. However, at 7.30 until 7.40, when the sun is physically rising, and that means that it's come off the horizon and it's going up, 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 up until it clears the horizon, a process which takes about 10, 12, 15 minutes, then this is the absolute haram time to pray. And it's not acceptable at all. Because of the hadith of the Nabi Sallallahu where he prohibited the prayer during the time that it rises between the horns of the devil. So this is very, very uh, restricted. And of course, this time is referred to in many of our acts of worship. We're not allowed to do hardly anything at this time because this is the time that the mushrikeen worship, the pagan worshippers, the sun worshippers. And so therefore, to avoid us ever being associated with them, we do nothing. So much so, for example, in the Salah, you don't pray. Here, look at the Prophet ﷺ. He's woken up during that time and to almost dismiss this period, he told his companions, let's get on the horses and ride during this time. And they rode 
like for 10-15 minutes, and then after the sun had cleared the horizon, then they started to pray, to show that we do not pray in this period of time. If the Prophet ﷺ had woken up at 7.15, where it's very bright, but the sun hasn't risen yet, and so there's another 15 minutes left before the sun rises, he would have prayed immediately. Does that make sense? Because even though that's a generally prohibited time, but it is not prohibited to pray Fajr if it hasn't been prayed yet. And of course, once the sun starts to rise at 7.30, then that becomes totally prohibited. And in the action of the Prophet ﷺ, you saw that he got onto his horse and said, we're not going to pray. And that's why when you do Hajj, and you uh, spend the night at Muzdalifah, you will see that the Prophet ﷺ, when he prays his Fajr, he makes Dua. There's no Sunnah or anything like that. And he stands and he makes Dua, and he faces the Qibla. And this Dua is a long one. Remember that the Prophet ﷺ, Anyone who follows the Sunnah, they know that Fajr is not prayed late, it's prayed early. And if Fajr is one and a half hours long, then Fajr is prayed after 15 minutes. So after Fajr, there could be at least one hour before sunrise. And so, obviously we're not used to that in this country. Generally our masajid like to help out the people and push the Fajr prayer a bit later. Okay, so that when they finish praying, there's not so much time left until sunrise, and then people can go work or whatever. But obviously as per the Sunnah, they pray early. And the Prophet ﷺ would stand and he would make du'a at Muzdalifah during Hajj. And he would make du'a, make du'a, and he was happy to go much, much longer as well. Because actually later on that day, later on that very same day, when he stones Al-Aqaba, and then later on then through the three days when they go into the other Jamarat, after each one, the Prophet ﷺ would make du'a. And Aisha ﷺ said that the length of the du'a of the Prophet ﷺ was the length of the recital of Surah Al-Baqarah. So you work that out. I think, uh, Sheikh, one and a half hour? One hour? One and a half hour? Bikra'atikum yeah. antum? No. Sa'a nasf, yani? Yani... Hadran? Yeah, hadran, yani, just a minute. Eh, eh. Sa'a nasf, sah? And I can't say it. Aqal. Aqal. yani? So if you if you've ever heard Sheikh Abdul Ghaffar here recite, okay, you sometimes hear Sheikh Abdul Ghaffar like for example he today he was reciting Salat al Isha, mashallah he was playing a trick on us because he didn't revise so he recited very slowly today. Okay, this is not yani, his normal recitation, but if you see his recitation in Salat al Fajr, then this is what we call Hadram, which is nice and smooth and and quite quick, and at that speed it will take about an hour to recite Al Baqarah. Okay, at a quick, continuous speed. So think of Sheikh Abdul Ghaffar's normal recitation. That's about an hour. So the Prophet ﷺ to make dua for an hour is no big issue at all. Yet the Prophet ﷺ stopped at Muzdalifah and he gets all the troops and he goes, right, let's move out. And they move out whilst the sun is rising again as a slap in the face to the Mushrikeen to show that we don't do any acts of worship during sunrise itself. Okay, so that's why the Prophet ﷺ delayed it. Is that clear, everybody? So that you understand. And then he prayed it immediately afterwards. It's not permissible to delay. Huh. The point I was going to make is that the Hanafi school, the school itself, I should say, they made a very interesting statement. They said that if someone has missed their Fajr prayer, and they wake up, for example, 7.31 or 7.30, whatever, they should pray immediately, even during sunrise. Even during sunrise. And the reason for that is because they said that if we were... And anecdotally, this has been proven so true as well. If we did not allow them to pray it then, then to say to them, pray it in 20 minutes or in half an hour, they won't pray it. 
I know you might say that's ridiculous, but the truth of the matter is there are many people that when they're told to push something off till later, they don't pray. That's actually the same reason, by the way, that when you miss your two Fajr Sunnah before the Fajr Jama'ah, yes, you know, imagine that you come late to the masjid, yeah? And the Imam has already started and you haven't prayed your two Sunnah. That's why, in principle, you're meant to pray those two Sunnah after sunrise, later, okay? But many of the scholars, like Abdullah ibn Umar, he did allow some people, even though his own practice was to pray those two sunnah after uh, sunrise, because he's, he's late, his own practice was to advise others that if they were not going to, if they were going to forget, or they were going to be lazy, or whatever, then he would allow them to pray immediately after the two fard. Soon as Islam is given, the jama'ah is finished, the obligatory, he would allow the person to pray two rakah. Because, and only because, he feared that they would not pray it later. Likewise, the Hanafis, they took a kind of bias from this and they said that if the Am people, and I mean this, lay people, because anyone who has half a brain, who understands the, the, the prayer and its importance, they would not be so lackadaisical. They would see sunrise, they would know it's haram to pray, they'll say, I will pray in 15 minutes, I'm not going to miss it for the world, whatever. And if you find a person like that, then you can't give this statement and fatwa to. But the Hanafis were saying, but when you look at the normal people, you're kind of like, are you sure that that person's going to do that? And so for that reason, they allowed a person to pray during that time. Okay? And you might say, what is the action, what is the ruling of that prayer? If a prayer is prayed at a haram time, what is the ruling on the prayer? Who can answer that? Can you repeat that? What is the ruling of a prayer prayed at a haram time? Good. A bit more. Yes, the Fajr prayer, for example. A bit more. Not rewarded, not punished. No. Punished. Punished for wrong time. And prayer? No. Prayers. Uh, remember, this is about a person who's asleep. What's the point of praying if praying if it's invalid? Prayer valid and action punished. Okay? Action punished, prayer valid. Do you understand? Now, you might say, well, what's the point then? Better for the guy not to pray. But it's not, is it? Yeah? It's not because if we leave at 20 minutes, maybe he won't pray at all, which would be punished and no prayer, potential kufar, yani, no, we'll, we'll take the punishment in the first half. There's some crazy kind of usul going on, but I like it. It's a bit of a kind of romantic kind of flex, yani. you know, I, I, like, I, like, I like when people think about these things. Uh-huh, go on. Uh, sorry, uh, Basit, yeah. Um, this uh, Hanafi position, so do they, regarding the hadith that you... Uh, Just stated now. You quoted, yeah. Do they... Think that this hadith means that it's a preference to wait. Correct, correct, correct. They actually understand it exactly like I said. They said that the prayer itself would be valid, but it would be sinful. And the Prophet does not want to do something which is sinful, and he's never going to miss the prayer afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Right. So that is that. As for that's the that's the nos. That's the text itself. Okay. Um, also. Uh, Sheikh also says that there's an ijma' upon this. Many of the scholars have mentioned that there is a consensus okay, on this point from the early scholars. And they also said from the aql as well. They said that if we were to allow people to not have to pray because of sleep, then you know, prayer would just become you're like a Christian, yani. that's it. Go down a pan. Pray whenever you want. Because then, you know, people black to sleep day and night. They would. They'd just sleep at the prayer times. That's what they would do. <laughs> anyway. 
Okay. Um, another point is is that when you uh, miss the prayer, okay, um, what is the actual prayer called when you miss a prayer? Okay, we have our own, Pax have their own unique yani, phrase of Qaza prayers, yes? Qaza. And we of course have created this whole, I don't know, this whole culture. That's exactly what I'm looking for. The Qaza culture. Okay? So the Qaza culture is that basically this is part of normative life. I'm a normal person, I'm a working person, I'm a studying person. And Allah subhanahu I mean it's amazing. It's amazing. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made this prayer such a specific, clear obligation at its set times. And yet we at the same time were able to create a culture of saying the exact opposite. That the prayer does not need to be prayed on time. And if you do pray on time, it's good. But any kind of difficulty or any kind of awkwardness or any kind of my own perception of what is uncleanliness, yeah, then I will delay the prayer. And delay the prayer is all I'm doing. So it's like as if dhuhr is only recommended in dhuhr time, but it's quite okay to pray at the night time. And Asr and Maghrib and Isha. And that's why, you know, most of our families and earlier generations have done exactly that during their work, during their education, during their whatever. And they all end up praying all the prayers at home in one kind of go. Let me make it clear that this is, just for in case there's any doubt, that this is not only haram, but it is an act of kufr and it's something which is completely and utterly unacceptable. And the statement and, and the word qaza, which is of course the pack of, way of saying qada, okay. Qada prayer is the, the de- definition of a qada prayer is a prayer which is unintentionally missed uh, and it's prayed after its time. So it's unintentionally missed and it's prayed after its time. And that is the position of the majority of scholars. Okay? The majority of scholars they consider when you pray a prayer qada'an, qada'an, it means that you prayed it after its time. As for Sheikh Lusan Taymiyyah, and I'm not going to go into the reasoning for this now because it will become relevant later. But it's important for you to know that he disagreed and he said that a person, when he prays a prayer after its time, non-intentionally or unintentionally, it is adat, adat. You know, it is the opposite of qada. It means performed on time. Let me just explain this. Qada means performed after its time. The opposite to that is adat. You know, like in Urdu, we say namaz adakaru. Yes, do we say that? I think, in, what did they say? What does somebody say? Sheikh Adawad is dead. Have you seen him? He's absolutely gone. But they have adak, sah? No, because I'm saying if you study, I'm like, yeah, six years now. Every single day. Every single day. Kaza, kaza. It's from when we finish when we finish Salah here yes. until we have people coming for a taxi driver why you want I, I will play what is this moment it's crazy man yeah. it's crazy is it 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 is I don't know, man. I don't know. Whether... Also, even the Arab people, when they come to study for the university, they are doing this. Uh, but they're not doing it under Jamaat, they're doing it also in Qadar, yani? We infected the rest of the yeah. people, yani. Yeah. Okay, Pakistanis, there you go. Like biryani. Like biryani. <laughs> Infecting the world. But biryani is good, yeah, Sheikh. Come on. I'll take biryani. Don't make me upset now. Don't make me upset.
reminded me of the lack of biryani at home. Anyway, so, uh, so qada is the definition of the prayer which is done after its time. But when it's done on time, it is called ada. Now this has a legal consequence, okay? So when you say adathro, it means you did something rightly, without negligence, performed it correctly. Shaykh al-Islam is saying that if you miss a prayer unintentionally, you've also done ada. And actually, it's a very common sense position. He's saying that if you were to go to sleep, the time of the prayer is when you wake up, not when you were asleep. Does that make sense? So if you were asleep and you miss fajr, obviously because of no negligence from you, then when you wake up, that is your time. Because you've not been held accountable for during the time when it was, because you're asleep. And when you wake up, you are obligated to pray. And you are not sinning when you pray it. Once you pray, then therefore it cannot be considered to be qada. Now the reason, I'm not going to go into the big story yet, because it's to come. But the reason this is important is because Ibn Taymiyyah was also one of the big first early not the very first, but the big voices behind the concept of actually understanding what to do with the proper qada. So when we talk about proper qada prayers, we're talking about all those prayers that the people did not pray when they were not practicing. So many people, of course, many of us, it's the big, big question, uh, do we have to make up the prayers for the first 10 years that I was not practicing? I, was, I started practicing at the age of 20. What do I do for those seven years? I started aging, practicing at the age of 30. What do I do for the 20 years that I didn't pray? Or that I prayed here and there, but I can calculate all the prayers. What do I do about that? That's a massive issue which is not to be taken now. But you will know that the four imams all agreed that they have to be made up, every single one of them. And that is the issue of qada, okay, the proper qada al-umari as we call it, the qada of one's entire life. Whereas Ibn Taymiyyah very specifically is the flag bearer of the position that there cannot possibly be a making up of a qada prayer of this type. And therefore there is no making up of those prayers. And therefore the only way that you can make up for this huge mistake is by the two key pillars. Number one, tawbah. Number two, by reparation, meaning that you pray as much sunnah as possible to fill up that huge hole. This hole is, is taken from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, which is narrated in the um, in the Sahih of Ibn Hibban. And the hadith is authentic. And Nabi ﷺ said that on the Day of Judgment, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will tell the angels to judge the person's prayer, then they will reach into the obligatory prayers and they will not find sufficient. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will then tell the angels to reach into the vat or the bank of the sunnah prayers. And then that should be full. The prayers will be taken out and the obligatory will be fixed and completed out of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Which emphasizes for us, of course, the importance of sunnah prayers. That's why sunnah, nafal, voluntary, supererogatory, extra prayers are essential. Because everyone is not only missing their obligatory prayers, but they are praying poor obligatory prayers. And so to have a very healthy bank here to fix the obligatory, that is what will happen. Now the Prophet ﷺ then continued and said that the same will happen for all of the obligatory actions. Therefore those who messed up in zakah, and many people do, and I always remind the people that the, the 99% of the people that I meet do not know the rulings of zakah. 99%. They tell me some stuff and I'm like, I'm just, you know... I don't, back in the back in day I used to laugh, you know, because it used to be funny. Now it's not funny anymore. It's just not funny anymore. People have got lots of wealth 
over many years and have not paid zakah upon it. And it's very, very, very serious. It's from the pillars of Islam. And you, I don't need to, you know, go on a go on a rant about that. But so what I'm saying is that many people have messed up zakat, which makes the sadaqah even more important, because then the sadaqah bank will be then reached into, and the zakat will be fixed, and all of the actions will be like that. Ramadan fasting, another nightmare for people messing it up. That's why the Mondays and the Thursdays and the three days of the month and the the Muharrams and the Ashuras and X Y Z. They need to be done regularly to fix this obligatory. Yani this, is, this is the least of the reasons. The least of the reasons for our voluntary ibadah is to fix the obligatory. Let alone to have extra reward, just stand alone. So that's a whole separate uh, point. So for Sheikh Al-Islam to come to this position, which is a unique one, only followed by Ibn Al-Qayyim and by some modern day scholars, it is the minority opinion. It is the minority opinion. For those who keep asking, yes, it is my opinion. It is my taught opinion. And I believe the evidences for it are very strong. But I want you to understand that from the usul of Ibn Taymiyyah to come to this position, to give this fatwa, essential to that is his understanding of qada and adha. And that's why I just make the point that when you perform the prayer in its time, it is called adha. And for Ibn Taymiyyah, if you wake up, it is still called adha. Because for him, qada has to be a willful action that happened from previous time. But anyway, we'll come to that later. Yes? Yeah, regarding this uh, hadith uh, about the angel... Yes, Ibn Hibban, yes. Yeah. Um, is the text, does it say the lack of prayer or the lack of consistency in the prayer? Both is assumed. Right. The word naqas is the actual deficient. Deficient is the, is the phrase, but its meaning is complete, meaning it's applicable to both. But we can talk about that another day, inshallah. Okay, so, uh, so at that point, okay, oh, uh, so that was sleep. What's the next part in the English text? It has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness from sleep or fainting, okay? So the next phrase is fainting. Now, I think we spoke about this, right? Before? Fainting? We were, we, were, we were kind of, uh, I don't know which... Year two. Year two? Yeah, yeah, we did. We had a debate about... How many days... Uh, Correct. Exactly. And what the best word is to be used. Now, this is important, okay? This, this, this section, we'll cover this and then we'll call it, okay? But this is probably the most important in this actual beginning chapter. Because according to the Hanbali school, anyone who faints, who loses consciousness through fainting, okay... And what, what is, what is, what is faint, uh, fainting according to the Hanabila? It means al-aql, meaning that the, 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 the consciousness is gone completely, it's closed. Meaning that he does not have any form of ihsas. You know ihsas, yes? Senses. He has no senses. In sleep, you have senses. So if you are light sleeping, you'll wake up very easily. And even if you are deep sleeping, your sense of hearing is still going, right? And so therefore, you will uh, wake up if a loud noise goes off or something happens. So that's very important. So sleep has been given a very clear categorization in terms of its characteristics, and you have to make up the prayer. However, fainting is completely physiologically different. Physiologically different from an Islamic ruling point of view. We'll now get an idea from a, a medical point of view what the actual differences are. But according to the scholars, they define ihma as when a person, if you try to wake him up, you cannot wake him up. That's it. 
That's nice and easy. So if you have that definition, now you know what that, that, that state is. Whether you call that fainting or whatever. So who's going to just give us a good word? What is that? If someone's asleep and you wake them up, then if they wake up, then that person was asleep. Would you agree? Okay. If someone is out cold and you try to wake them up and they don't wake up, what are they? Don't say he's out cold, because I know that. <laughs> but, but, then, but they're unconscious when they're sleeping as well. Unrousable. <laughs> it's a great word. I can swear it's not used in the medical profession. Unrousable. Unrousable. I don't know. I don't think that is. is that, no? The actual process of fainting is for simple. Right. Unconscious is the way to go. Hmm. I don't know. No, no sense. Not awake and aware of and responding to one's environment. Not aware of, not awakening, and not not aware of one's environment. Not awake and aware of and responding to one's environment. Yeah. You could sleep this. What's that word? Unconscious. Unconscious. So that's the word. Unconscious. So what what happens when you go to sleep then? But that's what I'm saying. Sleep falls into them. No, but that's not. No, sleep doesn't fall into that. Say not, it again. Not awake. Not awake, which is sleep. Not aware. You are, you, you are aware. When you're sleeping? Yeah, of course. If you were not aware, how can you wake up? Is that right? Yeah, but we saw that. Yeah, yeah, we're looking over. I mean, you know, when we're talking to you when you're asleep, you're not going to remember. <laughs> we'll, 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 Don't hate, bro. Don't hate, bro. Don't hate. <laughs> Don't hate, bro. Don't hate, bro. Don't hate, bro. Don't hate, bro. Guys, you see that? That's you don't say that live on TV. That's not right. <laughs> you meant to hide these things, brother. No, it was just an example. I okay, know, just an example. Okay. <laughs> so, if you talk to someone when they're asleep, they're not aware. They are aware. No, they're aware. Sorry? You hear your alarm clock. Aware means. Carry on, carry on. That's because. Can I finish the definition? Not aware. And respond to one's environment. And respond to one's environment. So if one's environment has sound and you respond to it and then you wake up, then you're obviously not unconscious. Am I wrong? Yeah, that's me though. Don't, don't, don't go by me. That's my translation. Okay, that's why I'm saying the actual Arabic is. Uh, it has to be made up, the prayer has to be made up by the one whose aql goes. Aql goes either by sleep or ighma, which I've translated as fainting or intoxication, etc. So the two phrases which we need to de- deal with are number one, his aql zal, means his aql is gone, okay? And listen, you know like Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Walid, he made a really important point last time, I repeat it again today. Sheikh Walid told you that, you know when you have phrases, okay, in the Arabic, you must understand the meaning of the phrase as understood by the author. وَمَنْ جَحَدَ وُجُوبَهَا كَفَرْ Yes, we did that part of the text. Whoever what? Whoever what? What did we translate it as? Come on, man. It was only last week. Whoever jahada denies the obligation 
of it, the prayer, has disbelieved, yes? Which is how we, uh, uh, I, I, I translated it. Whoever denies the obligation of the prayer. But Sheikh Walid made a very good point. He said, Al-Juhud and the Salaf, Juhud uh, with the Imams of the Salaf, means more than just a kind of mental or internal kind of, uh, I deny the obligation. It means a physical action and rejection. Zak obviously had a blonde moment and now he's very happy at the moment, so I'm not going to give him his thing. Just one second. I know that he's got a big smile. It means that he's found something yeah, and amazing. I know, so I don't want to ever lo- let him lose his moment because it's important he gets his moment one or twice a year. But, but just one second. So he said, Al Juhud, yeah, Sheikh Walid said, it means a person rejects it totally. Like, like pray. No, I'm not going to pray. I mean, what kind of stupidity is that? So that is like proper juhud, yes? And that's very important from an aqidah point of view because the passive juhud, the denial of the obligation prayer, is the way of the asha'ara and the mu'tazila. Okay? The maturidiyya. The deviant sex. Whereas the salaf, alright, they understood that not only is iman a belief, but actions as well. And so therefore they want a physical reality behind one's faith. Because if you keep compartmentalizing faith into just a belief, then you start to lose the importance of the actions. And that's a big discussion. But the point is, is that with the self, the word juhud has a physical reality as well, that you reject it. Don't, I don't just don't deny the obligation. I'm not going to pray. You know, I don't care if you're going to pray. I'm not going to pray. So again here, when we're, dis- when we're defining this sentence, you have to understand it as how the author understands it. And the author, and this is the, the, the key point, sees all of these three things as the same. And that's why he's, it's, he's, he's happy to use that the person who loses his consciousness, whether through sleep, whether through uh, fainting, whether through intoxication. That's why he uses that phrase. However, as we are now going to teach, we are going to differentiate between them. And we are now going to state that actually the correct position is the position of the majority of the scholars, and that is that one does not make up the prayer when one has fainted. And that is a position of the majority. Now, I'm going to explain this now. But before I explain it, if you now know that you are not going to make up the prayer, would you also agree then that there is no need to now use the phrase loses consciousness via sleep, via fainting, via intoxication? Do you understand now? I had to translate it as per being faithful to the humbly text. So if you translate it according to the humbly understanding, then exactly as I have translated is how it would read. It has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness from sleep, fainting, intoxication. However, because we do not believe that you need to make up the prayer through fainting, then you could probably say it has to be made up by anyone falling asleep, losing consciousness through fainting, intoxication, etc. That is how we would make it up in our taught does that make sense? Does that make sense? Go on, Shazad, now. Try and disprove me wrong. No, no just the definition of... Um, we're looking at the Glasgow Coma Scale. The who? The Glasgow Coma Scale. You know, the Glasgow... The Glasgow Coma Scale. scale. Yeah. Who cares about Glasgow? So they said... The, the, the you know, by the way, just, the, 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 we need to make a point here. The only reason that Shazad uses the Glasgow Coma Scale is because it was born in Glasgow. <laughs> That's the only reason. And I, every time I tell him, listen, you can't just favour a scale... Mm-hmm. Over the more international, uh, uh, internationally approved scales, because you were born in Glasgow. Do you know what I mean? I mean, isn't that the most obvious thing? She said, "Well, uh, stuporious." 
Who? Stupor. Stupor. Stupor, you pack. <laughs> I don't know why you did. This was your golden moment. And even in your golden moment, you did your own best, Tiara. If we put this one on the, uh, I put this one on here. Oh my God! So this, this one shows you the levels of. Uh, Stop making fun of Shazad. That's not right. Put it online as well. All right. Really. Yeah. All right. Really. What's the point? Of just doing it here. They need to see online as well. What is that? I don't even know what you're looking at. What's this? Yara? Wikipedia. Yeah. Sheikh <laughs> Wikipedia. Okay, what is it then? What are we looking at? So this is a level, meta-conscious, conscious, confused, delirious. Oh, this is the levels of, of, yeah. of knocked-outness, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you were right. So that's comatose. Comatose is there, although in the definition at the top it says, uh, those who are not, being, uh, not able to be aroused from a sleep-like state are said to be. <laughs> Carry on, read the honey, baby. Just keep reading, bro. <laughs> Does it hurt, Shaz? Is it like irritating <coughs> that even in your best moment, I'm still right? No. <laughs> okay, so what we can say is that both physiologically and both Islamically, okay, there is a differentiation between sleep and ighma. Ighma is fainting, losing, losing consciousness <coughs> to a level that if someone tries to wake you up, you cannot wake up. And sleep is you losing whatever it is, consciousness in such a light sense that you are considered to be sleeping, a state which does allow you to respond to certain levels of change in your environment, whether that be sound, whether that be touch, because even a gentle touch you can wake up, صح? whereas a person who's fainted, sometimes you can you know, really give them the full shake and they can't, whatever. So I think it's very common sense what I'm saying. All right. So uh, to summarize, because we've gone over time and obviously we'll have to do another lesson on this, that's no problem. Um, I just want to say that in preparation for next week's lesson, you can do some reading and it'd be nice. The prayer has to be made out by someone who is sleeping. However, when you have fainted and you have lost consciousness, then even though the Hanbalis, they want you to make up the prayer, the majority of scholars do not. The Hanafis, they have a very interesting position. Imam Abu Hanifa, he said that if the prayer is less than five prayers, so up to a level of five, then uh, prayers yeah, and you missed because of your loss of consciousness, then you have to make it up. And his main student, his main companion, Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, he said six prayers, okay? And uh, it's very interesting, and it's nice to operate like this, yeah, at the practical level, but there's no evidence for this position whatsoever. In actual fact, it's very interesting because Sheikh bin Baz, he would say three days, okay? Anything, anyone who's unconscious for less than three days has to make up the prayer. But at least Ibn Baz, he used an evidence which is weak. He used the hadith of Ammar ibn Yasir, an, who was unconscious for that period of time, and he did make up those prayers. However, number one, it's weak. We'll look at it next week. Number two, even if he did it, even if he did do that, even if we accept it's authentic, it doesn't necessarily mean it's obligation. It could be something out of recommendation. And even we would recommend that. But the point is, at least he made evidence, at least his evidence was uh, was Yani, uh, 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 narration. Whereas the position of Hanifa was purely Akli. What he said is that he basically made a decision. He said, listen, if a person is going to be knocked out, then we've got to make a decision. 
What's a, what's a small number of prayers? What's easy yani, to make up and what's not? So for him, he said, what's easy, quote-unquote, to make up is five prayers. And his student said, six prayers. And Uthameen says, listen, in his classic way, he goes, if five prayers is easy to make up, then so is six and so is seven. <laughs> he goes, there's no evidence for this position whatsoever, without due respect, yani. So, um, But so anyway, Sheikh Uthameen very strict upon this. Any person who loses consciousness does not make up the prayer whatsoever, whether it is for half an hour or three hours or ten years or whatever. That's the position of Shafi'i, the Shafi'i school. That's the position of the Maliki school. And there are exceptions, of course. We'll cover that, inshallah, next week. Okay? Um, any questions for today? Any questions for today? Sleeping on routine due to work and your missed prayers, was it night shifts? So the question basically is that you are in a situation which you can't control in that you are in an odd routine, upside down, nights, days, whatever, and you fall sleepy and so on and so forth. Are you held accountable? Meaning, are you obligatory, for example, to change your shift? Answer, no. Answer, no. You are not obligated to change your shift or the way that you seek your risk if that is what is easy for you at the moment and what you're suffering is a temporary kind of difficulty. If it turns into a permanent situation where you are always missing your prayer because of this new position or this new shift work, then one has to change it, of course. And that's one of the reasons that people change their job and they have fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he changed it for something better from that which he never could imagine. So they had to have taqwa in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to try and be brave in that. But the normal kind of person who's doing one week on, one week off, then suddenly he's told to do emergency cover and he goes messed up and he misses Fajr, he misses Dhuhr, whatever, whatnot. This is not sinful. This is genuine sleep that was needed for a genuine reason, not the norm, not done regularly, and he prays immediately when he wakes up. So good question. The question is, a person comes back after a long journey, very, very tired, wants to go sleep immediately, but is very, very sure that if they go to sleep now, they're not going to wake up for Fajr. And uh, because of the nature of the day or whatever. Is it possible uh, in any way to pray the Fajr early? And the answer is no. The Fajr prayer does not have any form of concession of moving forward or backward other than within its actual time. Unlike all of the other prayers. So for example, if there was a person who came home at Maghrib after not having sleep for 24 hours, yes, then this is the person who we would say, you pray your Maghrib and Isha at Maghrib time, save yourself the two hours waiting, and invest that two hours extra sleep in waking up for Fajr. Yeah, that is what you would do. You have flexibility with the other prayers. That is what the Prophet ﷺ allowed through his action, as narrated by Ibn Abbas in Sahih Muslim, that he combined between the prayers when there was no fear and there was no rain. Why did he do that, Ya Ibn Abbas? So that the, the difficulty can be lifted from the Ummah. So Ibn Abbas understood it, that this is an emergency concession which is available for people. And yes, I'll say to you now that it's for working people in winter time, even though one shouldn't promote it, it is there. If there is someone who is in one of those really difficult days in this winter, where the asr is like proving impossible, or the dhuhr comes at the difficult time, because obviously in two hours it's all, you know, all over, and they're in that unique situation, then it is permissible to combine as a one-off. And I mean as a one-off. And that is the whole definition of the combining for a need. And that's what you do. But there's no concession with Fajr. All right. Um, 
Did the Sheikh say that when the boy is 10 or 11 years old, he is not allowed to go into the ladies' section even to deliver a message? Is it the same for the girl who is the same age? I did say that and I do say that. That a person, that the scholars generally would avoid sending in a 11, 10, 11 year old boy or girl into a gathering of the other side. However, however, let's make it very, very clear what the Islamic ruling is technically on both. Number one, someone who is prepubescent, it is permissible for them to be there. Okay? But we are being cautious and the scholars, the only advice is best. Number two, a gathering of anyone can have any age person amongst them. So for example, if there is a gathering of women, 15 women, and a man, 30-year-old, walks in between them, that is permissible. Obviously, I mean, with hijab. Yeah? What we're talking about here are without hijab. When we're talking without hijab, then we reduce the ages just to be on the safe side. Yes. I think there's a lot of questions about times of prayer and when you can. That's right. Times of prayer, you shouldn't be asking. You should know by now that we don't take less uh, questions on things which are to come later. Uh, only on the lesson content, yes. Um, specifically on the issue of Hajj, um, where you have a hadith that mentions that this, this an accepted Hajj wipes out an entire lifetime's worth of, of sins. sins. Yeah, would that cover, say, ten years of salat missed? Would that, would the Hajj specifically? Exactly. So the question here is an, is a good one and a popular one, and that is that when it comes to, for example, the missed prayer and big kind of sins throughout one's life, for example, missing the prayer for ten years, then the hadith of Hajj is a very a very kind of visceral and very emotional one. The Prophet ﷺ said that the man who comes back from an accepted hajj comes back like the day that his mother gave birth to him. And of course, when you give birth, when you are given birth to, then you are absolutely free of sin. And so the scholars, they had a, a difficulty, quote-unquote, in trying to reconcile between the fact that there is no action in this life that can expiate for the major sins except Tawbah, and yet this hadith would seem to, uh, because it says that one person is free like the, the day they were born. And the correct position, the position of the majority of scholars is that this hadith is referring to the minor sins. That the hadith is, and there, there is some, there are some, that said that this hadith, no, it must refer to all sins, major sins as well. And everything is cleaned up. But this would be going against direct text. It wouldn't support itself. And so therefore, the majority position, and Allah knows best, uh, Yani because it's a khilaf issue, is that no, the hadith refers to the minor sins, not the major sins, the minor sins. And there's a long discussion behind this, but that's the, that's the position. And I think also the good reason of bringing it up is that people shouldn't feel safe with this kind of understanding. A lot of people, a lot of packs especially, they kind of keep this hadith in, the, in their back pocket thinking, you know what it is? I don't need to pray all my life and I'll just go and do hajj and I'll fix it all in one move. Yeah? And I mean, that's just, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't even know what to say to that kind of thinking. I mean, you know, first of all, you're wrong. You're just wrong technically, which is slightly a tragedy. Number two, the majority of the scholars expect you to make them up anyway, which is a bigger problem for you. And then the third, who knows you're going to stay alive until you go to Hajj. And then fourth, who knows what's going to happen at Hajj when you go, whether a crane's going to fall on you, whether you're going to get squashed yani, by yani, crowd, whatever. Who knows? Who knows? Whether you're going to get burnt in a bus We've lost people in every single one. We, we knew people who got crushed. We knew people who got hit by the crane. And we know personally a number of people from this country that have been burnt in bus fires on the roads. There's many people from the doubt that that happened to. So who knows? Who knows?
and then have to assume that it got accepted as well. And who does good Hajj these days anyway? Who does a good Hajj these days and who knows what they're doing anyway? So, you know, a person who thinks like that online just needs to just stop and just calm down and have some tea and just, you know, just have you know, a couple of biscuits and just calm down. You know what I'm saying? Just pray. Yeah. If one is praying this, the sun is rising, will he make the intention for Qadr? No. If a person is actually praying whilst the sun is rising, they do not make the intention for Qadr. They are making the intention that they are praying on time, quote unquote. But we'll come to that, inshallah, later. We'll call it, okay, everybody? Yes, Julia. Uh, just one question about when doing the prayer late, and you said it's not sinful, it's unintentionally done. Is that um, the fact that there's no sin upon the person, is that based on the fact that Yes, correct. The, 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 the question is, is that is the fact that you're not sinning when you wake up, um, is that based upon the fact that the Prophet ﷺ himself did it and he is sinful? Yes, it is based upon that, but it's also based upon the fact, I mean, it's a philosophical discussion on what do you say it's based upon, okay? Because from the aql, it makes complete sense. We cannot... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not hold. It's obligatory upon Allah. And this is what, you know why I say philosophical. Because you start to get into an aqeed discussion. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it obligatory upon himself to not punish those people who do not have the ability to know or to understand. That's from the adl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the basis why you are not punished and why it's not sinful. However, the Prophet ﷺ himself, it happening to him and nothing happening as a result. And the companions who were... Uh, by the way, I didn't mention the full hadith because Sheikh Uthameen didn't. But the full narration of the hadith, the, prophet, the companions after the Prophet ﷺ had prayed, they came to him, all of them. And they were very stressed. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, what would happen to us because of the prayer that we missed? And the Prophet ﷺ said, there is no tafriyat, there is no negligence in missing the prayer if you don't know of it or you are sleeping uh, as a result of it. As long as you pray it when you remember it. So that statement there was a very clear nos to show that there cannot be no sin when you miss it unintentionally. So that is also the basis, of course, of the ruling. But I don't want to kind of, de- I don't want to, what's the word? Lesson. Huh? Lesson. Lesson the impact of, the, of our aqidah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has clearly made us in a way where the rules of Islam are very natural and very logical and very, yani, common sense. We'll call it with that, insha'Allah. Jazakumullah khair. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka. Allahumma wa atubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.